0: Rahim, This is the Renovatio podcast. I am Imran Ali Malik. Today we hear from Dr. Jonathan Brown, a scholar of Islamic studies who has written extensively on the studies of hadith and Islamic law. He currently serves as an associate professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service where he also holds the al walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilization. Some of Dr. Brown's books include Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy, and The Canonization of Al-Bukhari and Muslim. In addition to his academic work in Islamic studies, Jonathan Brown is a vocal public intellectual, inclined to candid expression of his views and critique on issues of politics and religion. Here is a clip from our conversation where he presents a unique perspective on Western studies of Islam, as both a problem and an opportunity.
1: I find, and what I've tried to argue in my writing and my teaching, is uh, there's a lot of potential room for cooperation or engagement between Muslims and non-Muslims, studying even like the life of the Prophet and the early Hadith tradition. Uh, But that that, that requires that non-Muslim scholars also take a critical look at their own perspective, right? Their own methodology. So the idea, you know, common idea is that like, you know, if you, if a person, a human being were just sort of born and dropped out of the womb and right now they would, you know, a normal human being would see human beings, would see history like a Western, modern Western person Mm -hmm. does. But that's just absolutely not true. We see history from our own perspective. We have our own biases about religion. We have our own expectations of religion. We have our own suspicions of religion. And a lot of these are not based in any good evidence.
0: Renovatio's editor, Safir Ahmed, sat down with Dr. Jonathan Brown briefly in President's Hall at Zaytuna College's new campus, where their conversation ranged from studying Hadith to academic versus religious presentations of Islam, and also how Muslims are new to being part of the cultural elite. Enjoy.
2: I wanted to begin with asking you a very open, broad question, which is, what is Hadith? As a, um, as a historical phenomenon. How mm. would you define that?
1: Well, um, in one sense, it's easy to define. Uh, hadith is uh, some, a report about something that the Prophet, alayhi something that the Prophet Muhammad uh, said or did, or something that was done in his presence, and to which he did not object. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a very easy thing to define. It's a report that consists of a chain of transmission and the text of the report itself. Um, usually, you know, uh, when we think about them, we think about them in, in hadith collections. These are you know compilations that were um, put together by Muslim scholars, uh, beginning in the mid seven hundreds, really until the the um, uh, even the eleven hundreds of the common era. Um, but uh, you know, in another sense, uh, hadith is much something much bigger and harder to define in um, in Islamic history, in the sense that uh, it's. It's a way of one of our main ways of knowing about the Sunnah of the Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, authoritative precedent, and uh, as such, it involves it sort of enters into every aspect of a Muslim's life, both in in sense of you know the intellectual life of Islam, but also mm-hmm. the, the practice of Islam. So you know to define, for example, exactly what hadith literature is is hard to do because, uh, you know, if you open a book of poetry, you might find Hadith in there. If you open a book of political thought, you're gonna find Hadith in there. If you open a book of, um, you know, uh, on how Persians are wonderful or something like that, you're gonna find Hadith in there. So, uh, you know, they enter, it's like the, you know, the Quran is everywhere, the Hadiths are everywhere as well. So I think that, um, you know, you can talk about certain genres of writing where Muslim scholars focused on hadith, let's say writing commentaries on hadith collections, right. or the science of cri- hadith criticism. These are, you know, pretty squarely within mm-hmm. the, the subject of hadith. But then some of the biggest hadith collections are actually not really hadith collections. they are things like the history of Damascus of Ibn Asakr, who died in 1171. Um, this book has, uh, it's published in 80 volumes of the history of Damascus. But it's also full, and full of hadiths. I mean, there's hadiths in there that you don't find in any other collection. So uh, you wouldn't think of it as a hadith collection, but the history of Damascus, the history of Baghdad, these are actually hadith collections.
2: But these, most of the hadith was started a lot, roughly 100 years after the Prophet's life, right? Well, uh, they were hadith, document, began to be written and documented. So
1: <clears throat> the life of the Prophet, and immediate aftermath of his life, um, Muslims didn't have very. Um, efficient means of writing down. They didn't have paper. They had a parchment. They had a papyrus. These are very mm-hmm. expensive, and um, uh, uh, so and they don't last. I mean, we don't really have. Uh, they didn't write systematically. Write down the words of the prophet until um, the, essentially the generation of the successors, so not the not the companions, but the successors. The companions had some notebooks, some little. Uh, Things they personal collections they have, they might write things down that the Prophet had said that they remember him saying, pass this on down uh, through their family. But it's really only in the time of uh, the younger generation, the younger successors, so the, the people who are sort of the last surviving students of the companions of the Prophet. Mm-hmm. That's when uh, in the kind of early uh, 700s and mid 700s, you have the writing down of hadiths in a more systematic way. And a few of those examples of that have survived in papyrus or parchment form, just a, fragments. But it's really only in the mid to late 700s that Muslims start uh, systematically writing down hadiths. And it's also when they start systematically engaging in scholarship, when mm-hmm. they start seeing the production of books like the Muatta of Imam Malik right. in that time period. <clears throat>
2: um, related to that, how would you, you know, let, just talk about the significance of the hadith tradition from the perspective of the study of history
1: hmm.
2: how would you approach that what would you do?
1: well uh, i mean the significance of hadith of what you know in terms of what muslims did in terms of the human study of history or what are the what's the significance of hadith as for our study of history
2: now no, in terms of what Muslims did, I mean the okay. first part of it. I mean, same.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that um, you know, I, I'm always wary of engaging in cheerleading and you know, saying like Muslims invented ice cream or something like that. But I mean, <laughs> I, Muslims uh, in their the science of hadith transmission and criticism that Muslims developed at the beginning pretty much in the mid to late 700s uh, of the common era. This was a very unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some um, uh, kind of structural precedence in the way that uh, Christians passed down information about Jesus in the early gospel period or uh, the way that the the Talmud was or the the Mishnah and the oral Torah of the rabbis was passed down uh, by the rabbis after, um, you know, the time of Christ. But uh, none of these things compare in any way to the Hadith sciences as they emerged, I mean, even in the early Islamic period. And
2: what's the marked difference to you? Uh,
1: The Muslims are extremely uh, consistent and very quickly about uh, demanding chains of transmission, Mm -hmm. about keeping track of chains of transmission, about rigorously uh, evaluating or recording and evaluating those chains of transmission. Um, There's simply not, you wouldn't even be able to, some bring together enough material to have a critical process in the Christian Jewish traditions. I mean, they didn't have the uh, the data. Uh, Muslims just mm-hmm. immediately started collecting this very quickly, essentially after the generation of the companions. And um, uh, what's interesting is that uh, Muslims, uh, even very early on, acknowledged this. Uh, so Abu Talib al-Makki, who was a famous uh, Sufi from Basra, he died in about uh, 996 of the Common Era. He wrote a book called uh, Qut al-Qulub, which I'm sure Sheikh Hamza's a fan of. Uh, and in it one of the things he says is that uh that, uh one of the things that uh, several things that uh, distinguish Muslims from any other community, mm-hmm. one of the things that he says is they memorize their holy scripture uh-huh. uh, which other the entirety of their holy scripture, which other groups don't do and he also says that uh that they have the the asnad, the, the chain of transmission mm-hmm. by which they uh they uh try to authenticate attributions to earlier figures. Um, and again, it's not like Jews or Christians or or Buddhists or Chinese Zen Buddhists and these groups, it's not that they didn't understand that things could be forged and that they, they weren't trying to find ways of authenticating material, but uh, the methods they came up with were nowhere near as uh, as elaborate or detailed as the Muslims.
2: That's interesting. Now I want to turn a little bit, take that what you just said and turn it a little bit to modern the modern academy, the academic uh, environment that you work in now. Um, how does the modern academic world relate to the hadith tradition
1: mm. Well, how uh, do they see yeah. that in what you
2: just talked about
1: i mean for the uh, for the, there's a couple of different routes by which Western scholars came to the study of Islam mm-hmm. um, Most of them had to do with the colonial experience uh, colonial government or or the study of the colonized peoples. One way, the the way that really uh, ended up having to do with uh, engaging Hadith and Islamic law and the Quran, was all uh, through uh, um, the study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of the the idea was that, you know, the the European study of the Bible and its emergence and the formation of the biblical canon and the discovery that the text of the Bible had gone through significant changes in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that that they were then going to simply do the same thing to other religious traditions in order to enlighten those folks. I mean, I I don't mean to be dismissive of their intention. I mean, there's still a general opinion amongst a lot of Western scholars that, you know, that other religious traditions kind of behave and function the way that Christian Jewish traditions do in terms Mm -hmm. of scripture, in terms of the way orthodoxy forms. So uh, what the study of Hadith and, and the Quran and it's the origins of Islamic law are all about the, what's called Islamic origins. Okay. So, and, and you can imagine this also has to do with a general Western, you know, Western European assumption that Islam is not a true religion, right? So the idea is, um, you know, we've woken up, we've discovered that our religions aren't really true, in the sense that we had imagined the before, in the sense that you know, there's historical Jesus and historical Bible and historical, historically preserved revelation. So now, uh, if that's if that's the case for our religion, so it's definitely Islam is definitely made up. And of course, we know it's made up anyway because we've been saying that for centuries and centuries and centuries. So we, you know, we all know these people have problems and their religion's horrible and all this stuff. So it's it's based on the idea of if Islam's not true, if Islam as we know it. Is, is a later production, a later concoction. What, what was the origins? And so the study of Hadith and the Quran becomes a way of trying to uncover those origins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, still, that really dominated the study of Hadith for a long time and still does have a strong influence. And it's a, a major, you know, to what extent is, is this report about an incident in the life of the Prophet true or not? And if it's not true, which is almost certainly the case if you're a Western scholar, um, who, who invented it? Right. And uh, <clears throat> only in the last couple, maybe the last twenty years or so, has there been a lot more interest in studying hadith as as it actually functioned in Islamic civilization, namely mm-hmm. as a as an important part of religious life and as a, a source of law and a source of dogma that has an existence on its own. You know, so you know, it, so people come and ask me you know, is like, "Is Bukhari reliable or not?" And right. I would say, you know, it depends. It depends what you care about. I mean, if you're, if you're interested in studying the development of Islamic theology from 1200 to 1800, it doesn't matter if Sahih Bukhari is authentic or not because that's, the people who are working with it all assume that and you're studying the development of a tradition, you're no longer worried about what its supposed origins were. So right. there's a lot more interest now in studying hadith as part of Islamic civilization as opposed to some key to unlocking its origins.
2: One of, is one of the allegations or not allegations, I should say one of the suspicions or doubts that the Western Academy brings to the Hadith tradition that some of these folks in the transmission were, you know, biased in their own way, excluded things that didn't make the Prophet look good, or you know, things like that. I mean, are is there some? Um, is that already a suspicion? And a and then B is it? are any of this is any of this valid?
1: Um, I don't think it's very valid. Uh, I mean, first of all. All the quote unquote dirt about mm-hmm. the Prophet. It's, it's not like there was some Christian monk living in Medina or, you know, spending the summer there and like writing his diaries, like, boy, you never believe what happened today, you know. No, this stuff all comes from Muslims. So right. Muslims wrote this recorded these reports. Right. So, you know, when you have a story about the Prophet like eating meat before he was a prophet, eating meat that was sacri- had been sacrificed to a to an idol. This is a controversial report. I'm not saying that's actually happened. I'm just bringing this up as an example. I mean, Muslims preserve this report. When you have reports okay. like in uh, that the prophet, when he first met the angel Gabriel in the cave of Hira and was so distraught, he thought about killing and throwing himself off the mountain and killing himself. Muslims preserve this report. The st- satanic verses. Muslims preserve these reports. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's not fair to okay. say. That, you, know, you could say, well, um, but in the kind of more authority, you know, the most authentic collections like Sahih of Bukhari or Muslim, you don't find these reports. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's true, but... Um, so that's their idea, like, well, these guys cleaned up this material. But it's not like Muslims weren't studying the life of the Prophet before Bukhari and Muslim came along in the mid-800s. And it's not like, you know, the the majority... The, the the text through which Muslims throughout history mainly interact with the life of the Prophet, things like Sirat al halabiyya or the Seer of Ibn Hisham or the 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 different Ma'led literature. A lot of this stuff has material that Bukhari and Muslim and the Hadith scholars had purged as unreliable, but it's in, in these other genres. It's still there. Right. So uh, you know. Um, there's not some kind of conspiracy that Muslims engage in. It may be that simply scholars like Bukhari and Muslim thought that these stories were not reliable enough in their change of transmission.
2: That's good to know. I mean, I think one of the, um, I want to turn a little bit to the, the broader issue what we, where we're heading with this is that um, the approach of, in the Western Academy to teaching religion in general. You, What classes are you teaching right now at Georgetown, for instance?
1: So I'm, I'm not in religious studies, thank God. I, I don't know if you <laughs> feel bad. If it, I mean, I, I should say all, all fields, all academic fields are are problematic in some sense or another. Uh, I don't... Uh, so I'm in school foreign service. My classes, right. I teach are mostly history classes okay. or Islamic studies classes. Um, so right now I'm teaching a class on Sharia law mm-hmm. and I'm teaching a class on uh, Islam and slavery. And uh, I think, um, you know, when I teach classes on, let's say... Uh, Yes. I teach a class called Islamic World, which is a big, you know, for, for history 101 type class. Uh, we have, you know, sometimes anywhere from 70 to 100 students. And it's all about Islamic civilization from the beginning to the up to the present day in one semester. Theology, law, art, mm-hmm. history, politics, so different regions. Um. So there's a lot of religion in there, right? Uh, my my, What I try to do is to... Uh, Give the students different perspectives. So I think uh, I I, I'm, I don't preach what I think. Mm-hmm. But I I'll let's say I mean, for example, like when you think about the life of the Prophet, Salaam, you're already you know even if you're saying you know I'm mm-hmm. going to be a Muslim and well, there's different perspectives on the life of the Prophet. For example, Sunni and Shia Muslims have different perspectives on the life of the Prophet. Mm-hmm. So even if you said I'm just going to teach this as a Muslim, you'd still have to do the issue of whether or not you're going to teach it as a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim. Right. Um, certainly, the, the way the companions are portrayed is very different in those two different traditions. So, what I, what I try to do is, you know, give there's certain things about the life of the prophet that are are fairly well established, not only within Islamic history, but actually even from non-Muslims. This is what's very interesting. We have early non-Muslim sources uh, anywhere from the 630s to the 670s to the uh, the mid 700s of the Common Era written by uh, different uh, Christian denominations in Greek or in um, Syriac. Mm. And uh, they note a lot of details about the life of the prophet. For example, that he had traveled as a merchant before he became a prophet to Palestine and to Yemen, that, um, that, he was the, that his sunnah was the guide of the Muslims, that they followed him religiously that um, that he forbade drinking wine, and forbade lying, that they he taught Muslims to follow, the worship the one God, the God of Abraham. Uh, so actually there's a, and then based on epigraphic sources like rock inscriptions by early Muslims, we also have a lot of data on, you know, kind of like when the different caliphs lived. So if you want to just look at the broad outline, and then of course we have the Quran, mm-hmm. right? So if you want to look at kind of broad outline of the prophet's life, you know, he lived at this place, he moved to that place, he said this, um, you don't that you you have a even non-muslim te- testimony for this so that you know you can teach pretty I think in a pretty um uh, secular way right? right you're not you're not you're not <clears throat> asking anybody to make any faith assumptions right uh, but then when you get to like the more details of his life then I would say well you know Sunni Muslims take this perspective Shiite Muslims take this perspective if you're if you think that this this is like kind of a later construction, you might think this, as like a Western historian. So I just sort of give the students different perspectives, like kind of dialing different lenses Mm -hmm. on this path. Most
2: of your students are Muslim or not Muslim? Most of them are non-Muslim. Okay. So here's an odd question. If you were to teach that class at a Muslim college, like a Saytuna, how would you teach it? Would it it be any Mm -hmm. different?
1: You know, I don't think I would teach it very differently. I I think... um, so I'm not a very uh, I'm not a very like uh, religious per I mean that sounds kinda weird to say. <laughs> I mean I'm very privately religious, right? right. But I don't right. I'm not like a really like masha'Allah. <laughs> I mean I don't, I'm not very good at that, you know? Yeah. So I don't really do like a religious performance well. Right. Um, you don't wear
2: it on your sleeve too much, yeah. Well I,
1: I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like cool or something. I just am not good at talking like, in that way. Yeah. Um, I feel uncomfortable and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So I, and also it, it, there's other people who do that much better than me. Uh, so I think maybe what I would have to offer students is to give them, <clears throat> to teach them how to think from different perspectives about the past and how you construct arguments for, for let's say you, you know, let's say I'm Sunni or I'm Shia and I wanna make an argument to convince another person in my perspective on the past. How do you construct an argument that convinces another person? How do you, how do you, you know, based on what that other person will find convincing, how do you make how do you make an argument? So I think that's maybe the angle I would take. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think I would do a bad job of um like a more wavy uh preaching uh class. I think I would I would probably do badly at it.
2: Um yeah, I mean I think what I'm trying to get at also is is um Traditionally trained scholars, Muslim mm-hmm. scholars, and scholars who are trained in the Western mm-hmm. acad- academy, if you will, um, are they so far apart? Can or can they actually engage with each other? Is there some mm-hmm. common? I mean, where where is the demarcation? I think there's a they, lot you know, of
1: uh, commonality. Um, you know, as as I you know, once you get into let's say take hadith for example, I mm-hmm. mean, um, once you get into the you know let's say 900s 10 hundreds of the common era you know you're you're within a, you're inside like a closed system at that point and you doesn't matter if you're muslim or non-muslim i mean the 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 stuff you're dealing with you're, you're talking about like you know let's say continuity and change within that tradition so mm-hmm. it's not doesn't matter if you're muslim or not uh in terms of what I what I find and what I've tried to argue in my writing and my teaching is uh, there's a lot of potential room for cooperation or engagement between Muslims and non-Muslims studying even like the life of the Prophet and the early Hadith tradition, uh, but pro- th- that 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 requires that non-Muslim scholars also take a critical look at their own perspective, right? Their own methodology. So the idea, you know, the common idea is that like, you know, if you if a person, a human being were just sort of born and dropped out of the womb and right now they would, you know, a normal human being would see human beings, see history like a Western, modern Western person mm-hmm. does. But that's just absolutely not true. We see history from our own perspective. We have our own biases about religion. We have our own expectations of religion. We have our own suspicions of religion. And a lot of these are not based in any good evidence um, And uh, so what I always ask, you know, non-Muslim scholars to do is, look, if, you know, take an example of uh, a hadith, you know, hadith. Okay, why do you assume the Prophet said this? The Prophet, you know, I assume the Prophet said this. You assume he didn't say this. Why? You know, if you ever think he said the Prophet woke up one day and walked out of his house and went to the mosque. Okay, do we assume that's true or not? I mean, what is, like... Why do you assume that's not true? Right. Uh, why do I, you know, um, so to really look at what are our presumptions? and Why do we have these presumptions? Why do we have a presumption of suspicion? When mm-hmm. we look at the details of it. You know, we have something, let's say, and the Prophet said, this is a good example, he said, you know, the the uh, the Qadriyyah are the Majus of my Ummah. The people who believe in free will, the Qadriyyah, mm-hmm. they are the Zoroastrians of my community. This is not a very reliable Hadith. But, they would a non-Muslim scholar would say, okay, this is made up because the kadrīya didn't exist during the time of the prophet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. And a Muslim could say, wait a second, yeah, but the prophet can know the future. God can give God God can give the prophet knowledge of the future, right. so he would might know this. But then, so there's these. It appears to be kind of a non no, no possibility for, for yeah. seeing common ground there. Right. But then, when you look at the actual versions of the hadith, you find the most reliable versions are the people who believe in Qadr are the Majus of my community. So what happened was, originally, let's say the Prophet said, the Quran talks about belief of free will and predestination. So if he says, people who believe this, they are the Majus of my community. That's not, is it really that crazy that the Prophet would say right. this? No, it's right. not crazy thing. you not talking
2: all. about a particular group of people. And then later just, on, yeah.
1: some narrator, it's like, imagine someone said, you know, the, the people who believe in freedom, uh, Said this in the American Civil War. And then later on, I say, you know, the revolutionaries or the Democrats or the Republicans. Like, so later on, after a te- technical term gets invented, we kind of substitute that for what earlier was not yeah, a yeah. technical term. So, you know, and you actually find this in a lot of cases where a hadith is using a term that's later invented, is a later invention. Is actually the most reliable versions of that hadith don't include. That technical term. They just include like a description, and later on, a technical term is substituted. So my point is that there's actually, um, you could actually find a common ground where non-Muslims and Muslims could come to both accept the historicity of that original report.
2: So that you, you, what you adjusted, the examples you just gave us were, it requires a deeper level of study to in order to understand that what you just said about the, the quote from the Prophet's life that yeah. you know. So that is that something that you clearly as a, as a, you know having done all, all the work and study in hadith have know that but for somebody who's coming new into it a western academic even would be hard for them to they would take they wouldn't go to that level of study
1: well did. i think one of the problems is that the western academy is built on this idea or you know modern western Academy's premise on this idea that we Modern folk are shedding light on un, uncharted, unexplored tracts of ignorance, scientific ignorance, historical ignorance, mm-hmm. ignorance about religion, ignorance about people's ignorance of themselves, of their own traditions, um, and that uh, you know that's an extremely arrogant view. Um, and what that does is it creates a, a culture in which someone can come in to a graduate program having learned a little bit of Arabic and go and study something for a few weeks and then decide that they know more than the 1400 years of Islamic tradition. Now, they could be right. I'm not saying that's not that's not possible. Of course it's possible, but uh, you better be careful. Uh, right. You certainly should uh, check and make sure that you have in fact looked at all the material. So a lot of times people don't and then they end up making uh, uh, very uh, fallacious arguments, arguments based on insufficient grasp of the evidence. And uh, uh, so, you know, for me as a, and the same thing, I, I make the same argument, you know, not necessarily with history, but on issues on issues of law and dogma, like for example, from like progressive Muslims come and they say, you know, you need to, you need to, Islam is wrong about this position or that position. You need to, and I say, look, you could be right, but if you want me to give up 1,400 years of well argued um, history and, and huge amounts of evidence and stuff like that, you better have a pretty pretty good argument. You know, and if you can't just think you can stroll up and mm-hmm. and use, you know, because it's because it's something new and different that I'm going to just give up uh, the work of scholars, the great scholars of the past. They could be wrong. You could be right. But you better make a good argument for that.
2: And so your point is, if you, you know, one way they look at it is, is there evidence for this? Is there documentation of something? And you're saying if there isn't, why do you automatically assume it's not true?
1: Well, that's one, that's one case. I mean, yeah. for example, if someone says, you know, um, there's no evidence that, uh, I mean, uh, uh a good example would be, um, I'll uh, just something else of my head. For example, why is the prophet allowed to have more than four wives? Mm-hmm. This is a very, like, there's not a lot There's actually, as far as I know, there's no the the quran or the hadith doesn't have any you know discussion of this it's something that muslims later on had to sort of like figure out but they they all knew this mm-hmm. but no one's ever debated this but they didn't wasn't clear evidence for this in the early period why what was the reason how mm-hmm. to explain this um just because there's not evidence just because there's not some discussion there doesn't mean that the thing is invented uh sometimes some of uh, basic assumptions of a community are are un uh, unspoken. You know they, they don't get addressed till later on. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one example. But an, another example would be, you know, if you, you know, like for example, you know, uh, one guy came and said, um, I mean, sorry for like con- controversial issue, but it's a good example. You know, one guy said, oh well, uh, the hadiths that talk about uh, the, the the punishments for um, homosexual sex for men. These are made up. And the guy who made them up was this uh, the student of Ibn Abbas, Ekrima, because he was a Harajite. And he's therefore, he thinks that people should be punished and considered unbelievers for committing sins. And so he has these really harsh hadiths he makes up, or he brings these into circulation. Well, first of all, there's all these other narrations of it, not mm-hmm. from this guy. And second, the um, in another hadith uh, the hadith where it says the, the you know the believer when he drinks alcohol he's not a believer it's been, I mean I'll just give you the english like you know, with the moment you're if you're committing sin or drinking alcohol in that moment you're not a believer right, right. so uh, there's uh, this person making this argument this was a scholar was saying this guy the same transmitter Ikrimah transmitted this hadith so he's see he's like saying that you commit a sin you're not a believer in that moment but actually the one version of this hadith that he narrates, he asks Ibn Abbas, after he after hearing the hadith of Ibn Abbas, he says, well, well how do they become a believer again? Like, he's asking him, like, oh, if the person um, repents right after that, they can become a believer again. So actually, this guy who's supposedly, um, you know, this severe, strict Kharijite who just wants to say everyone's a kafir, he's actually asking the, his teacher, Ibn Abbas, how can we make it so this person enters faith again? You know? Uh, and... So it's, if you hadn't gone and done all the different studies of the hadith that this guy narrated and all different versions of each hadith, you wouldn't have come with this conclusion. It's very easy to make a claim about somebody based on a very small amount of evidence where you haven't even gone and looked at their whole body of material. But if you look at the whole body of material, especially just the different versions of those hadith you're talking about, you find that the, the assessments that you're making are much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the kind of easy dismissals you're engaging in don't really fly. I don't know if that makes sense or not.
2: No, 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 I think it does. I mean, I I was trying to also step back for a minute, but I think I was trying to get at this idea that um, the approach that's brought to the study of Hadith, and you Mm. probably have done more work than most other people have done on it, um, it seems sort of rife with problems, the the Western academic approach in terms of understanding the Hadith tradition. I mean,
1: another reason is that, you know, Someone like say Ibn Hajar al Asqalani, this scholar died fourteen forty nine, the common era. You know, he wrote. Oh, you know, he wrote one major commentary on Sahih Bukhari, Fatani, mm-hmm. and he wrote num- numerous, numerous books of hadith criticism, and you know, I mean, an incredible amount. I mean, just just to read every book he wrote that survived mm-hmm. would take you years and years, years and years and years of your life to read these books. Let alone to replicate his accomplishments i mean just to go and say i want to follow his discussion of the narrations of mm-hmm. a certain hadith you'd have to sit there and spend you know hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours of research to like document chart out everything he said um, and then to kind of start to evaluate his work and say okay where did he make mistakes or where what do i think about the material that he you know that he collected who, who really made this up, or where did that hadith come from, or how did it develop, or whatever? I mean, this is a huge amount of effort. And um, not a lot of scholars have that kind of patience, uh, which uh, one who does is a German scholar named Harold Motsky, who's done a lot of w- this kind of work. And it's not surprising that Harold Motsky, although he's not a Muslim, his conclusion is like a lot of the, the dismissal that had been, you know, with which the the hadith tradition had been treated um you know saying that this is just this huge forgery so this is just completely inaccurate you know that when you look at this tradition in its entirety it's just not comp- it's not conceivable that a massive across the board forgery occurred and so uh, but but that kind of it's only when you engage in really in-depth study and kind of follow these muslim scholars at least try and keep up with them in their footsteps that you start to appreciate that this is not something that was just uh you know, made up out of whole cloth. And oftentimes, by contrast, the ways in which material was forged or unreliable material crept in uh, often occurred through doors that Muslim scholars acknowledged they had left open. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, they would say, we are not critical about hadiths that deal with good manners. Right. They'd say, we're not critical about this. And so, surprise, surprise, there's lots of hadiths that are made up about, you know, where you could go and say, oh, look, these are all made up about hadith, about good manners. But Muslim scholars acknowledge like we didn't pay attention to this stuff. Okay.
2: Um Before we close out, I think I uh, want to ask you one last question. Um, you know, there's this, we have a classical legacy of Islam sort of influencing multiple fields of inquiry in different disciplines from the humanities to mathematics, um, medicine, sciences. Um, Islam was sort of never restricted to quote unquote what we n- understand today as Islamic studies. Hmm. Um, and I'm wondering whether you think it's possible for islam for Muslims again to begin to have a similar influence in fields that are outside Islamic studies area I hope so um, Do you know, see hopeful signs of it? yeah, I question. think so.
1: I mean I think you know Muslims are are new to um, are new to life in the West um, as members of the elite mm-hmm. members of the cultural elite. Um, there's been Muslims in the US and Europe before, but uh, they were usually not in a position to to um to engage in these fields. So uh I think that uh you know we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves and you know I, whenever I meet young Muslims they come to me and say, I want to I want to do graduate school I want to do Islamic studies I say look you want to do that because you're interested you're interested in your religion you want to learn about your religion that's great uh, you shouldn't go to a Western graduate school to learn about your religion. You should go to study with Muslim scholars. If you really want to engage in the life of the mind and you want to, you know, be a scholar, go be a scholar in other fields. You know, go take what uh, you have to offer as a Muslim and go into, you know, uh, chemistry or psychology or uh, mm-hmm. literature or history of, you know, European history. I mean, especially doing European history, European intellectual history. I mean, this is how you really uh, combat kind of colonialization of people's minds. You have to understand the mechanisms by which hegemony has been constructed in our lives and be able to argue against it, to take it apart. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the number of talented Muslim students I meet is, I mean, I, I'm just so, so, always so proud and pleased mm-hmm. uh, with them. And uh, I think that it's just a matter of time before they, they start to have an impact in other fields. And um, you know, and and that that will be, uh, you know, I, I think that it not just necessarily for for Muslims, but I mean, I think for people, um, you know, people who are uh, who believe in in the transcendent and who don't want to just have their whole lives reduced to materialism, I think this will be very good. People <laughs> will be able to you know fight for uh, for something more than just the material world and the, and the sciences and, and different fields.
2: Glad to hear you say that because I mean, it sounds like you're hopeful that this is possible that people. Yeah, I do definitely. It today. I mean, I mean, <clears> think
1: <throat> definitely the case. I mean, I, I just I can't even tell you that the quality of students I've come across, even mm-hmm. in the last, you know, since I've been teaching, you know, 12, 13 years, I meet Muslim students who are far more talented than me and will have much more to offer.
2: Uh, Thanks for that. And uh, do you want to say one last thing about, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you want to talk about your project that you're working on, the Hadith?
1: Um, Oh, yeah. So we're um, the head of a project to translate the six books of Hadith, uh, six books of the Sunni Hadith canon, along with a commentary uh, which will pretty much be online. Um, And we've uh, done with Tirmidhi, done with Ibn Majah, i um, partially done with Abu Dawood, partially done with uh, Nasa'i, partially done with Bukhari. And um, so this will be a place for Muslims to go to, when they you know, everyone always ask me, like, where do I go to read hadiths? Where do? This will be the place to go so you can read this material with a guide that will help you understand, um, because the hadith tradition is vast, yeah. help you understand how this fits into the greater system of Islamic thought.
2: So it's all six books, commentaries, essays.
1: The essays are, the commentaries are partially, you know, for the, each hadith, if, mm-hmm. if it needs it. But the essays are to deal with, uh, you know, larger issues, you know, like the, the civil wars or the um, question of, um, like, the, what happens on the Day of Judgment or the mm-hmm. uh, issue of uh, people, you know, do you have to believe in hadiths, things like that.
2: So it sounds like a, a very massive project and be quite a good resource for people to... Uh, that's Go the to.
1: well yes, it is a massive project and I hope it will be a great resource. I think it is already. I mean I when I okay, I mean I've already I've obviously written a lot of the stuff, but I mean when I read it I say, yeah, oh, this is very good. Good job.
2: We'll look forward to it. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Brown. Um, this is Safira Amatura Novasio. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. wish uh, we had more time, but maybe there'll be a second time. Inshallah. All right, take care. Thank
0: you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Renovatio podcast. As always, please visit renovatio.zetuna.edu for more podcasts, videos, and articles. Assalamu alaikum.